Um, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, as Jeff said. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn there, I'm going to go from verse 1 all the way, probably 11. Uh, I'm thinking I'll get through the end of 11 there. But what I want to talk about this morning is freedom and specifically how to find freedom in the struggle, the struggle being this life in Christ and then this tension that I find in me to not want to necessarily always go that way. Uh, this past weekend was Caleb's eighth birthday. We partied hard. We celebrated. We had a good time. And uh, what that means is we got him a hamster for his eighth birthday. Y'all, we got like a hamster. We're a hamster family now. Um, I had a dog named Fluffy in the past, and so I feel like I need to stand in here in front and just repent a little bit. But um, Anyway, we did the hamster thing this weekend. I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding you. Like, that thing has been fighting for its freedom since it got home, right? Like, it was just hilarious. We brought him home, and you know, he's in this little box, and I didn't, I didn't know hamsters jumped, right? I thought that they just sat there and looked cute and kind of gnawed things, like kept things in their cheeks and made it all puffy and cute and stuff. But like, that, like this guy, like we, we open up the box and everything, and that little guy in there is like jumping up and down, trying to get out of the box immediately. He's got his friends over. Yesterday, they're taking a peek, and we put him in a little hamster ball, you know, and uh, we've kind of put him down, and so he's in this little ball, and he's running around, and, and that guy sees the door. He sees the glass and the outsides, and he just immediately goes strike straight for the door, trying to get out of there, but like I've never seen anything so motivated to find freedom, fighting for it, or anything like that. I sat there yesterday, and I was sitting by his cage. Everybody kind of got out of the house for a little bit, and I was watching him for a little bit, and I was like, you know what? I, I kind of understand you. I kind of understand a little bit. When you're looking around and you've got walls all around you, it feels like there's a, a ceiling over your head you're never able to escape from. Like, I understand the desire to be a little bit more free. And uh, I was reading a little bit of Barna this past week. If you're not familiar with Barna, but Barna is uh, a resource. It's a research company that does a lot of connection between faith and culture and talks about a lot of where we are today. But it does a lot of exit polls, people leaving the church, uh, people within the church and things of that nature. But this one was about uh, the people in the past couple of years that are leaving the church. And one of the, the third most stated reason there was a desire for freedom. And there's a sense that when you come to church or you come to a worship gathering or you participate in religion, there's something there that stifles the sense of freedom within you. And so what is this freedom that we're talking about? What is the freedom that we sing about in these songs that makes many of us have tears come to our eyes and we lift our hands in affection and praise and worship? Like, what is this freedom that we sing about? Like, where's the freedom when Paul talks in Romans 7 that we've talked about so many times in, in, in recent weeks? Like, where's the freedom when he says, hey, I find this thing in me that I hate, I do do the thing that I don't want to do, and I don't do the thing that I want to do. Like, where's the freedom in this thing where Paul's sitting there? Like, keep in mind, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist we've ever known, probably the greatest missionary we've ever seen, the guy who, through the Holy Spirit, has authored nearly half of the New Testament. He's sitting there and he's saying things like, I know that nothing good dwells in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh he's talking about. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. For I don't do the good that I want, but the evil that I do want, I keep on doing that exact same thing. Joby Martin kind of describes the struggle. He's a pastor out in Florida, but he describes the struggle kind of, like, kind of like trying to keep a beach ball underneath the water. You know that game you played when you were a kid? And let's be honest, we still do it as adults, right? You're like, okay, I finally graduated to awesomeness, and I can, like, I can actually keep that beach ball underneath the water forever. But you know that game, right? You sit on it, or you try to push it down or something like that, and you're like, I'm going to see how long I can keep it down there. And for a little while, you can do it. Like, you can keep that thing stuffed down. But eventually, you know that thing is going to come shooting right to the surface. You know that eventually, at some point, you can suffocate the sin. You can suffocate, uh, you can suffocate the, the, the former life to some degree. Like, you can push things down under the surface, but you understand that at some point, the temper is going to flare up. 
At some point, the lust is going to come out. The greed may come out, the selfishness, the self-righteousness, whatever the thing may be. And what you do is you grab it and you try to stuff it down immediately as quick as you can. But at the end of the day, you know that at some point, it's just going to shoot right back up to the surface. Like, church, what are you supposed to do with that as a believer? Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that constant tension? Like, how am I supposed to be free of all of that tension between what I know God has called me to over here and what I actually find in my heart, this thing in me that I hate over here? Like, this is what our passage is going to help us with today. And so just right up front, I just want to let you know, like, this is easily one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. This is a, this is a passage I come back to all of the time. It's a passage that's very, very deep and personal to me. In a lot of ways, this is a passage that God has used in my personal life repeatedly to set me free in a number of ways uh, and, and, and just minister in very unique ways. It's a passage I repeat to you guys all the time uh, from the front, and it's a passage that I kind of bring out pretty much every evangelism opportunity that I have. We bring this passage up to you, and this is a passage that's going to set people free. This is a passage that's going to suffocate shame, and it's going to elevate the beauty of God's grace in ways that, that you can't really, that you don't always see. And so this is a very deeply personal passage. Um, in fact, this past week, I was talking with my mom, and um, we were debriefing last week's message, which was one of the things we love to do. We love to talk about it, and, and uh, she was a Bible teacher her whole life, and we, we love kind of talking about some of these things, but she goes, you know, Aaron, I don't know if you know this or not, but like, these are the passages that God used to set your dad free. Like chapter 6 to chapter 8, like, these, this is the time. It was through meditation upon these scriptures right here that the Spirit of God worked inside your dad and completely changed him forever, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But so when I, like, this is, this is that passage for me. And my hope and my prayer is that it would be the same thing for you, that you would come into this thing and that God would do a work in you, that he sets you free from whatever the thing is that you're holding on to and stuff, and that you would be free to walk in newness of life with him. And so that's where we're going. Romans chapter 8, John Piper is going to say this passage. He's going to say, I believe that the Bible is the greatest book in the world. I believe the greatest letter in the Bible is Romans. I believe the greatest chapter in Romans is chapter 8, and the greatest verse in that chapter is verse 1. And so he begins like this, and he simply says, there is therefore now no condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now set you free from the law of sin and death. And so this is the context in which he brings this passage to the table right here. In light of the struggle that's going on, in light of that battle, this is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, in light of chapter 7, in light of, hey, I find this thing in me that I, that I, that I hate. I, I don't do what I, do, I want to do, and I, I do the very thing that I hate. In light of that internal struggle, uh, he's going to say in verse 24, he's going to say, wretched man that I am. The culmination of chapter 7 is he's dealing with this internal um, this destructiveness that's going on inside. He says, oh, wretched wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And this is the culmination of chapter seven. He's dealing with the internal turmoil right here. And he's saying, who's going to set me free of this thing? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. In other words, he's going to set me free one day, fully and completely still future. One day in eternity with him, in his presence, I will be completely free of not only the penalty of sin, but also the power and the presence of sin as well. And then right now, he's through his Holy Spirit, is going to be setting you free more and more every single day. But then he wraps it up in chapter 7, and he says, but right now, I find this thing here. I still serve the law of God with my mind, and then with my flesh, I still serve sin. In other words, there's this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing going on even inside of me. 
The great evangelist Paul, the great missionary Paul, the great theologian Paul, the Paul who taught us all about the newness of life, the Paul who taught us about the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Paul who teaching us constantly about the victory to be won in Jesus Christ, saying, I still serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh. I serve sin. And so the first thing that he does is he comes and he says, hey, to you who are the believer who's in the middle of this tension right here, you have to know that you have to know that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is be free of condemnation and shame. To the person that's in the middle of this thing, I, I, I know that you know that it's past tense condemnation. I know that past tense sin is dealt with over here. But what you have to understand is that when he paid for your sins once and for all, he paid for them once and for all, past, present, and future. Be free of that condemnation. Be free of that shame. He's saying don't be crushed by the struggle. In fact, like the struggle is actually great. Don't be crushed by the fact that in Christ, even though you know the ideal, you know what holy is, you know what following Jesus may be over here, don't be crushed by the fact that you're not fully always getting it right all the time. Don't be weighted down by this thing. The the struggle can be great. In fact, he's going to say later on, he's going to say, hey, this is actually evidence of the Spirit's work inside of your life. If If he wasn't at work, there would be no struggle. This is one of his arguments from previous chapters where he says, hey, one of the purposes of having the law of God in your life is to raise your awareness of what holiness and righteousness actually looks like. This is one of the reasons he gave us the law because apart from the law, you're going to continue in ignorance. You may not know what that looks like. And so you're never going to feel conviction about anything. You're never going to feel this determination or this weightiness to turn around and to go and to follow God in the first place. This is one of the points of it. And so it's actually a good thing if you're feeling that tension and you're feeling that struggle, it's actually, um, it's actually pretty good. I remember back in the high school days, I remember actually believing, okay, you know what? I'm pretty good. Got this thing figured out. Like <laughs> back in the, you remember that like when you first come to faith, you read a little bit, you hear some Bible stories, and you're like, yeah, I think I get the, I think I get the gist of it. And you're kind of going, I, I, I got this thing down. And then, I, and then I go on to seminary and I realize, oh my gosh, here's all this stuff I don't know. Like I even come in at the beginning there and it's like you're constantly learning all the different things. You had no idea about the things of God. You had no idea about the depths and the beauties of God's word here. And you're just coming more and more into an awareness of all the things I didn't know. Here's what holiness looks like. Here's what his righteousness looks like. Here's his perfect and holy standard over here. And here's why, where I am. And the more and more we come into maturity, And the more and more we come into understanding, the wider that gulf gets. But what he's saying to you in the middle of that awareness, in the middle of that understanding, is understand that in the middle of that thing, if you are found in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You don't have to be crushed by the weight of your sin. The word that he uses there is a legal word, which means your final judgment is secure. In other words, there's a difference here between shame and condemnation and then conviction and guilt. Conviction and guilt is the healthy thing in a believer's life. It's a healthy thing for any person in the world. It's the thing that separates sociopaths from non-sociopaths. Sociopaths are not able to feel guilt. They're not able to ever express remorse, feel remorse within them. Conviction and guilt is the healthy thing that says, you know what, I'm going down this path over here. I need to turn around. Shame and condemnation is the thing that says, you know what, there is no hope of return. It's when you're wandering down a path in the woods and that path leads you straight off the edge of a cliff and to your death. That's condemnation. Conviction and guilt is when you're wandering down that same path and it leads you to thorns and bushes and it leads you to stop and realize, hey, you know what? I need to turn around. I need to find the right path over here. It's the difference between conviction and condemnation. What he's saying for the believer, if that is you, in the middle of this struggle, in the middle of this turmoil, whatever the defeat may be in your life, Whatever the pain may be, whatever the, the, the thing you keep praying for over and over and over again, God, like that thing, I want it to be done. It's my last time, I swear. 
Whatever that thing may be, anger, greed, contentment, lust, whatever that, like, whatever that thing he's saying, you have to understand, if you are in Jesus Christ, condemnation has been taken care of. And you're free to walk in the newness of life. You're free to have only conviction and guilt, which is going to take you around. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And some of us need to feel, hear that today because it's really, really easy for us to sit here and to say, okay, I get that he's taking care of the past. But I, but I, I, I feel like I'm walking in a recondemnation every day that something brand new comes inside of my soul. Like, I get that he's taking care of the past, but what about the things that are taking place right now? I'm a believer. I should know better in my life. I'm a believer that's been walking with the Lord forever. Like, I should be a little bit further advanced. Is that taken care of, too? What about the things that are taking place tomorrow? I mean, what about when, when John says, he says, we should confess our present and future sins because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't we supposed to reconfess every single day so that we can receive his forgiveness? What John's talking about right there is reestablishing fellowship here and the cleansing of your sin that we can experience and everything like that. What Paul is saying right here, the condemnation of your sin is totally and completely taken care of already. Great way to think about it is like this. When Jesus was sitting there on the cross, which sins of his did he pay for on that cross? Was it your past sins, your present sins, or your future sins? From the point of the cross, everything from the point of the cross was your future sins. Everything from that point was your future. And so you don't have to sit there wondering, hey, I, okay, I, I, I get that we took care of it right back then, but, but, but what about today? The thing that I'm going on today, can't, is there forgiveness of sins? Is there condemnation here? What he's saying is you can be free from the shame and ongoing nature of condemnation in your life today. And church, what I'm saying is there's freedom when you come into an understanding of the fullness of what God has done in you. I'll never forget uh, this conversation back in the days I was working in Vickery Meadow. Um, Vickery Meadow is a refugee community, overwhelmingly, kind of at 75 in Forest Lane, or no, uh, 75 in Ro uh, Royal, I believe it is. Um, and so it's kind of over that area, a little bit east of 75 there. And, um, but it's an area that I used to work in quite a bit back in the day, but I remember sitting out there at a corner store one, one day, and, uh, and it was one of these times I just wrapped up some conversations, and I'm sitting out there, and I was just getting a drink on the side, on, on the curb, and there are a couple of guys around the corner, and just quite honestly, they were two of the more intimidating people I'd ever, I'd ever seen. And of course, I'm sitting there in the middle of a ministry moment with a number of other people, and, and uh, just as clear as day, I just felt like the Lord just kind of giving me a burden to go and to talk with these people. And, and I couldn't ignore it, couldn't, couldn't avoid it anymore. And so I was like, come on, Lord. It's like, are you for real? I got to go engage these guys over here? Like, it was an intimidating situation. And, um, and so sure enough, it was one of these days that I said yes and didn't, didn't ignore it. And... Um, and I walked over to these men and, 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 and engaged in this conversation. And I said, hey, I, I, I know that this, is, this may be a little bit weird, but I feel like um, the Lord wants me to come and talk with you about the forgiveness and healing and, and the newness of life that's found in him. I want to talk, tell you about Jesus. And uh, we, would you be open to talking? We, we prayed a little bit, and, and they, were kind of stand, they were a little standoffish. And, and, uh, and we sit there, and um, the guy looks up at me, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, man, he goes, I don't, I don't really think you know who I am. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, no, you're right. I, I, I don't know who you are in the context of this community or anything like that. You're right. I don't know who you are. I do know who, who God is, and I know, I know what he's done for you. And he kind of laughed a little bit, and he goes, no, no, no. I don't think you know who I am and what I do. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? And he begins telling his story about 
um, the drug trade, and he begins talking about his addictions, and he begins talking about all the different things that go along with that, and and uh, the destructiveness of his current life right there. And he goes, I don't think that your God is for me. And uh, we open up the word and I said, I tell you what, I want you to read this out loud. You read this out loud and you tell me if my God is for you or not. And we opened up to Romans 8 and I just had him open it up and just sit there. And I said, I want you to take this and I want you to personalize it. Read it through at least three times and out loud. I want you to say this out loud. And would you come and just, and just personalize it? And so he opened this up and he said, There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free. I said, okay, that's good. But I want you to personalize it and make it your own right here and say it again. And he goes, there is now no condemnation for me if I'm in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life can set me free from the law of sin and death. And I go, one more time, I need you to read this again. And every time he reads it out loud, this begins to happen as it becomes more and more personal. And he says, no, no, no. There is no condemnation for me who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the law of the spirit of life can set me free from the law of sin and death. This man who sat there and said, you don't know who I am, just got found out by the Lord. And he opened up and you began to see the freedom come into his life as he began to understand the weightiness of what Jesus has done on his behalf. Church, I'm telling you, there is freedom that is found here in the truth of what he's saying today. He was in this ongoing spiral of condemnation saying, you know, no, I, I understand he can deal with the things that happened long ago, but you don't understand the things that I'm in right now. I understand, that, I understand that he forgave me when I was six, and I understand that he forgave me again when I was eight at that altar call, and then at that youth camp when I was 10, and that other time in 12, but guess what? I kept coming back before the Lord saying, God, that was the last time I did that. This was the last time. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm walking with you, and I've done it over and over and over again, and he's realizing, you are realizing, we are realizing that in that moment, what he's saying is even in the middle of that place, there is no condemnation in the middle of that struggle. And this is the place that Paul takes us here in the beginning. What we have to understand, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he hung upon that cross and he died for the penalty of your sins, all of your sins were in view at that time. Not just the one when you were a kid, not just the little things, not just the one-offs and things, but the past, the present, and the future, the little, the big, the enormous, the things that you think were completely off base, that no one would love you if you knew what those things are. This is the beauty of what God is saying right here. In Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And what I'm saying is there is freedom that is found in this message, which is exactly why Paul takes you here in the middle of the struggle. Some of you are there in the middle of addiction, in the middle of God set me free from this thing, and the weightiness of the spiral of condemnation continues to stir in us. It continues to keep us far away. It continues to heap uh, insult to injury. It just adds to it and, and overwhelms. And what he's saying is you can be lifted, you can be free of that burden today, and you can lay it down, and you can be free of the ongoing condemnation and shame of that sin. I'm telling you, church, there's freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he takes us there here at the beginning of chapter 8, and he continues in verse 5, and he says this, he says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their mind on the things of the spirit. And so from there, 
He begins to delineate between the tension that goes on inside of the believer's soul. And he says, okay, there's, a, there, there's two sides sort of at war within you. You've got the flesh, you've got the spirit. There's a newness of life. There's a brand new heart. There's a brand new nature. There's a brand new right standing before God. You've got a brand new disposition towards him, him towards you. There's all these new things. Yet nevertheless, there's still this thing inside of you that I hate. I do the thing that I don't want to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what he calls that is the flesh. It's what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus when he says, hey, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you're born again, you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you remember what Nicodemus says to him. He's like, he's like okay, um, wait, how can a grown adult be born again? It doesn't make any sense, right? And Jesus says, okay, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying to you right now. I know you're already human, and I know you're actually physically born. <clears throat> but he says this, unless you're born of water, meaning a human birth, and you're born of the Holy Spirit, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. For flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, humans make other humans, right? But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And he's saying, unless you're born again, born of the Holy Spirit, you will not have life with me. It's what he says in verse 9 in the same section right here. He says, you aren't in the flesh, Christian. This isn't your designation anymore. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if he doesn't dwell in you, then you don't really belong to him. But he delineates between these two sides, and he says, okay, you really want to be free of the struggle right here. Then first, you've got to be free of the condemnation and the shame of ongoing sin. You've got, you got to deal with that, that thing that keeps you fixated on the problem instead of the greater reward, which is him. You've got to be free of that. But then number two, you've got to set your mind on the things of the Holy Spirit. Like you want to walk in the freedom of this struggle, be free of guilt and shame or the shame and condemnation, but set your mind on the Holy Spirit. And here's why he says that. Verse 6, he says, because the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind that set on the spirit is life and it's peace. In other words, like that thing that you pray for all the time, like that thing you're actually pursuing as you pursue your flesh and go down this thing over here, this thing you pray for, God, give me peace. Father, give me peace of mind. Father, would you breathe life into me? Would you give life to my soul? Would you give me life, God? That prayer that we pray all the time, what he's saying right here is it's found not by letting your mind go just where it naturally wants to go. It's not by chasing your own desires, your own personal happiness. It's not by going and being your own God or anything like that. It is by setting it intentionally upon the things of the Holy Spirit. It's Colossians chapter three when Paul says this. He says, set your mind on things above, not on the things Below, in earthly things, he says, put to death everything that belonged to your earthly, fleshly nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Rid yourself of anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language. Don't lie to one another. Since you've taken off the old flesh and you've put on the brand new flesh, <clears throat> which is being renewed in knowledge, he says, in the image of, of our creator. And so again, like we don't get to sit here with the defeatist attitude saying, okay, like what can I do? I can't do, I can't do anything. Like there's nothing good in me, Paul says, but that's in my flesh. Apart from him, I can do absolutely nothing. Like the whole point of what he's saying right here is you are no longer in the flesh. This isn't your designation anymore. You are in the spirit. He has filled you. He has given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is described as the helper in John 16, the one who convicts you of sin and righteousness, the one who leads you into all truth, the one who reminds you continuously of the Father's love for you, the one who changes you from the inside out, produces things in you like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and everything else. And then in verse 11, look what he says right here. He says, if the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in you and dwells in you, 
then he will give life to your mortal dying bodies through his Holy Spirit. In other words, church, like if the Spirit of God lives in you, you believe that this is true, like you believe the truth of God's word, then there is resurrection life and peace that is found when you put the death your flesh and you set your mind totally and completely upon the Holy Spirit. Will you give me a second here? Excuse me, this happens from time to time, but I want to be really clear what we're talking about here. Okay, when we're talking about setting your mind upon the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about, we're not talking about this mysticism. We're not talking about emptying your mind, emptying your soul, trying to discover your real self in some sort of an ethereal way. Like, setting your mind upon the Holy Spirit is not altogether mysterious. It is mysterious. It is not only mysterious. It is not this ethereal, okay, and hey, I'm just going to empty myself and try to discover my own truth, discover who I really am in and of myself apart from the truth of God's word. It's not self-sufficiency that we're talking about right here either. We know that we're not talking about self-sufficiency where you you set some goals and you grab the bull by the horns and you wrestle it down and things like that. It's what D.A. Carson talks about here as grace-driven effort. This is what he's talking about. He, he's given us grace. He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I love how he calls it. He calls it grace-driven effort right here. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We, swat, we slouch toward prayerlessness, and we delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. And so God came in, and he gave us grace. And it's not just a grace to be free from the penalty of sin. It's a grace to break free from our natural drift and to move toward him in a brand new direction. Like This is what we're talking about when we say, set your mind on the things of the Holy Spirit. Set your mind upon the Holy Spirit. Every single day, there's an intentionality that says, I am moving my focus from where I am in my flesh, my natural desires, the world in which we live in, and I am intentionally looking upon him, and I'm being reminded of his truth. I'm being reminded of his beauty, all of his character, all of his ways. I'm fixating upon his word, which is not different than the voice of the Holy Spirit, right? Through his word, he does lead us in the specifics, but it begins right here in the truth of his revealed word. And so every single day, it is an intentionality to come and to say, you know what, Father, you have given me the opportunity to walk in newness of life with you. And so, Father, right now, I am asking by your grace and by your indwelling Holy Spirit, By everything that you've given me to flourish in, Father, would you help me burn my old clothes right here and put on the new clothes of the newness of life that you've called me to walk into today? And so, church, I just want you to think for a second. Like, Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like if you were able to walk in that today? Can you imagine what it would be like if we were actually able to take off the old and put on the new? Think about the amount of peace in life that you'd have in your marriage if you were able to walk in more freedom over things like sexual impurity, lust, sexual immorality, things like that. Can you imagine what it would be like in your single life if you were to have more freedom, more victory? Thank you very much. Thanks, appreciate that. But can you imagine the amount of freedom that you'd be able to walk in? Like what it would do to your marriage, what it would do to your single life if you're able to realize, hey, if you're able to have that kind of freedom in your life. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine the peace that you could walk in if you had freedom over greed and anger and malice and rage. Can you imagine what it would be, how different it would be with the relationships that you have in your life? 
Can you imagine a church that was able to walk in greater freedom around those things? And we were able to put off the old and walk in the newness of life with him. I mean, what Paul's saying right here is, it all begins in your mind. He's saying it starts right here. There's a battle that's waging in your mind. And he's saying you want victory. You want to walk in the newness of life. Number one, shed the condemnation and shame. Number two, set your mind totally and completely upon the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not necessarily in strength. It's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's not necessarily the heart because the mind fuels the heart. He's saying it begins here in your mind. And so, church, if that's true, like we've got to understand that every single day, like our flesh is being fed with a fire hose by the, by, 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 by the world. Uh, we, we have to understand the, the, the ways in which we walk, and we've got to understand the different messages that we are being fed every single day and the conflict that that, uh, that brings into the newness of life that he's called us to walk in. I mean, tomorrow, if it's an average day, you're going to wake up and you're going to be exposed to nearly 3,000 to 5,000 different advertising messages for the average person, meaning we're talking about like pop-ups on your computer, Right, advertisements that come by on cars, billboards, and things like that. Things that are pushed through to your phone and, and things like that. Nearly 3,000 to 5,000 different advertising messages are going to be coming to you and trying to convince you that no matter how much you have, no matter how great it may be, you still need more. Church, we have to understand the, 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 the way that this is battling inside of our mind. Uh, this is what he's, he's appealing to greed over here. There, there's an intentional effort to get us to covet things that we do not have. How are they doing it? They're doing it through sex and through lust and sensuality. I was reading an article this past week told, called Why Sex Sells, and it says this, sex still sells. That's the conclusion of new research that finds ads featuring sex are on, on, uh, that are rising. People are hardwired to notice sexually relevant information, so ads with this content, they end up getting noticed. And he's talking about, like, this is a rise. This is, this is what takes place. And so we have to understand, church, like we're being fed. Our flesh is naturally fed every single day with a fire hose. And what Paul's saying here is, no, no, no. You have to set your mind totally and completely upon the things of the Holy Spirit. On average, five hours a day, the TV is going to be on. Uh, on average, we're going to be connected online another eight to nine hours. Social media, we're going to be connected to social media nearly three hours every single day which is a dramatic increase from 2012. Every single year, we've seen a stark increase in social media engagement. And I want to be very, very clear because this is not a war on media. This is not a war on social media. This is a simple acknowledgement that we're living in a different age today that has access 24-7 to an influx of information in ways that we've never experienced before. And what Paul's saying, no, 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 you want life, you want peace, you've got to set your mind completely upon the Holy Spirit. And the world in which we live in right now is not aligned with that desire. It's constantly a war with it. 24-7 through our phones. Before there was a newspaper, there was maybe a public family, a family computer in your living room, something like that. No social media, no advanced information gathering. We were at church nearly three times a week by average. The average committed member was there 44 to 48 times a year. Pre-COVID, it was 28 to 34. After COVID, I don't think anybody's wanting to know those numbers or anything like that, right? And so the average Christian student today receives less than 40 hours of intentional biblical discipleship in a year. Can we think about that for a second? The average Christian student today receives less than 40 intentional Biblical discipleship-oriented content in a year. Typically, it's passively listening a little bit to a Sunday morning. That's for the person that's engaged on Sunday mornings regularly. They get a little bit at youth group. They get a little bit on a Sunday morning, and that's pretty much it. 
Christianity Today came out with an article a little while ago talking about the increase in anxiety, especially among young people, but it's in the older generations as well, but it's all around our appearances. And it's talking about how because of the image-modifying software that Instagram can perpetuate, we are seeing this rise all over the place. Talking about how uh, social media bullying is a new thing. We see YouTube videos with tens of thousands of clicks propounding the greatest nonsense as unvarnished truth. You see this one? I mean, a video gets made and it's out there on the internet and you're like, oh, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? Uh, well, it's, it's out there. I guess it's all right. I guess the blogger is correct, right? 64% of the people who joined extremist groups on Facebook did so because the algorithms steered them there. This is not <clears throat> some church guy coming and making this argument. This is an internal investigation by Facebook done in 2018, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're looking at this saying our own algorithms. This is an admission of, of, of what we're talking about here, an acknowledgement from internal structures saying 64% of people who joined an extremist group did so because the algorithms steered them in that direction over there. All I'm saying, church, is that it's not neutral, right? We, when he's saying set your mind upon the things of the Holy Spirit, the world in which we live in is not neutral, right? It's, it, it's, it's hostile to that intent, and what he's saying, there's got to be a different direction when you wake up in the morning. 5,000-person study found that higher, the higher social media use correlated with self-reported declines in mental and physical health as well as life satisfaction. This is coming from the American Journal of Epidemiology in 2017. Right? We're not, again, not a Christian publication saying, hey, uh, do something Christian with it over here. Just saying, hey, this is self-reported. This is an understanding. Uh, mental, physical decline, life satisfaction. Says this, persuasive design techniques like push notifications and the endless scroll of your newsfeed have created a feedback loop that keeps us glued to our devices. Church, it's just not neutral. It's not neutral. All right, there, 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 there's, a, there's something set up over here which is antagonistic and in conflict with what God is calling us to over here. And what Paul is saying is, you want life, you want peace, it requires intentionality. It requires an awareness of the world in which we're living in right here that's saying, it is hostile to the things of God. And it's not to sit there and say it's time to go into a cave and go be a monk or anything like that. But what he's saying is, if you want life, you want peace, you want to be free of the flesh, you have to set your mind on the things of the Holy Spirit. There has to be an intentionality. There's got to be more than a brief, quick reading on Instagram and an inspirational thought. There's got to be a meditation upon the truth of God's word that allows the, what's true up here to take the 18-inch journey from our head down into our heart to become real inside of here. Like, this is what he's saying. Church, like, the world is, is opposed to what Paul is talking about right here. It disciples us, and it feeds our flesh every single day. Like that's what we live in. Why are we shocked when we, when we hear about declines in mental and physical health and life satisfaction? Meanwhile, Paul's telling us exactly where to find peace and life right here. And so again, he's not saying go live in the cave, go turn it all off or anything like that. He's saying be aware. And when we wake up in the morning, there has to be an intentionality that says, you know what? I'm fighting this battle in my mind and I'm fighting it by setting my mind, setting my eyes totally and completely upon the spirit of God. Verse 11, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, you better believe you can have peace, you can have life in your mortal dying bodies through his Holy Spirit. And here's the cool thing about everything that we were just talking about right there. Like, it doesn't have to be proportional, right? It doesn't have to be proportional. You don't have to look at all those numbers and think, hey, I'm only in defeat right now. There's 8 billion negative messages coming into my head that may not be aligned with the truth of God's word. You have the Spirit of the living God inside of you. This is what he's saying right here. 
One billion messages to the contrary can immediately be eradicated through 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes of intentionality with the truth of God's word and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, you believer, you have access to a newness of life, to a life and to a peace. Come before him and set your eyes, set your mind totally and completely upon him. And so he comes in and he admonishes us in this way. And this past week I was... uh, I was reading a little bit about my old uh, Navigators Helps. Uh, If you're not familiar with Navigators, Navigators is a ministry that does discipleship resources really, really well. Uh, Huge fans of some of their work, and um, I love they're able to um, simplify really, really difficult things. And uh, all, all the time. I, I love some of their stuff, but they, they break things down and they basically kind of, I've talked about the word hand at some point in the past here, but they break things down and they say, look, if you can, if you can be a person that is totally fixated in the truth of God's word with the word hand over here, and they use this illustration here, and you can be a person of prayer over here, and you can marry these two worlds together, you will be a person that has your mind set totally and completely upon the Holy Spirit. And so they use these two illustrations. The first one's the prayer hand. And basically the prayer hand is essentially to talk about the five different elements of, of uh, the essential elements of prayer. It talks about things like confession and petition. Petition is asking things of God, essentially. Intercession for other people. You're praying on behalf of other people. You're giving time and thanks. You're, you're expressing gratitude to the Lord. And you're spending time in praise. Those are the five things of the prayer hand right here. And then I love the word hand. We've talked about the word hand in the past, but they simplify it. And they say, these are the five ways that you need to come and to absorb God's word in your life. If you're going to be a person that's going to set your mind things upon, if you're going to set your mind upon the Holy Spirit, you, you, you've got to hear God's word. In other words, it's, it's not just studying it and reading yourself, but you've got to be people that, that listen to it. And you hear it preached. You hear it taught by other people. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's going to come and he's going to say, when I came to you, I didn't come in persuasive words of human wisdom, but I came in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his power, that your faith it may not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the very power of God. And he acknowledges that his unique role is to proclaim God's word and the Holy Spirit meets us in that place. And what he's saying here is that we've got to be a people that, that hear God's word first and foremost. One of the things I love to do is I'll podcast a lot of different people. Um, I don't get to listen to my own preaching very much or anything like that. It's kind of weird. So uh, I'll podcast a lot of people, some of the uh, people I love, Tony Evans, Priscilla Shire, J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, and just listen to the word of God in my ears and let it come down into my soul in very uh, profound and meaningful ways. But that's number one. You've got to hear God's word. Number two is you've got to read it for yourself. In other words, you can't just let other people talk about it all the time, but you've got to come to a point where you sit there and intentionally say, you know what, I'm waking up today, and and I'm going to intentionally set my eyes upon you. And we realize that there is not a tension here between God's Word and the Holy Spirit. When we talk about setting your mind upon the Holy Spirit, we recognize that the Holy Spirit breathed His words onto pages in a book and gave it to us in the Word of God, the Bible. This is what we are talking about right here. We are saying, I'm going to come before here and I'm going to read God's word for myself. I'm not going to take other people's word for it. This is what the psalmist says when he says, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just take other people's word for it. You hear me talk about my favorite restaurants all the time. Hillcrest Village is opening up over here. They got some good ones. Cane Rosso's coming over there. I think it's the greatest pizza in the world. Heritage Table and Rich Vanna is my uh, fa- Rich is a member here at DBC. Faithful person. It's out on Main Street in Frisco. Favorite place in the world. Unbelievable food. Unbelievable food. 
And uh, you can hear me talk about it all day long. I promise you, it is nothing compared to going and eating for yourself and seeing the beauties that's there in that culinary creation. It is just good. And this is what he's saying right here. We have to be people that read it for ourselves. Like you, you can't just listen to other people talk about it and accept, expect to have the exact same affections. You've got to study it, number three. Get into the commentaries. I'll tell you, this is when the Word of God became alive to me. I used to sit there on the college campuses and carry around these giant books and stuff because we didn't have the Internet back then that was really widespread or anything. But we got to dive into the truth of God's Word and discover the beauties that are there in His Word. You've got to memorize it so that it could be at the tip of your tongue, number four. And then number five, he says, meditate on the truth of God's word. This is what Joshua talks about when he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to everything that's written in it. Like when, that, when that verse was written, all he had were parts of the law. He didn't have the entire word of God that we have here. And he's understanding that even here at that point in time, there is beauty when we sit there and we meditate upon the truth of God's word. This means you take the truth of his word, you set your mind upon the Holy Spirit, you listen to his word, and you let it ruminate in your soul deeper and deeper and deeper until it becomes, until it takes that journey essentially from your head down into your heart. It's what the women practiced this past weekend. They sat there in the truth of God's word, and they just let it go deeper and deeper and more applicable and more applicable and more applicable as they chewed upon the truths of God's word and let it become real inside their soul. It's what the psalmist says when he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Uh, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to be able to behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. And to be able to just fixate upon his beauty and not just know that God is beautiful and all satisfying, but, but, but let that truth come deep into my soul. And what they're saying here is this. When you allow the left hand of prayer to come and be married with the right hand of God's word, you will have a mind that is set upon the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is life and there is peace. And so this is my dad's story that I was talking to you about at the very beginning. This past week, mom was telling me about it, and she's like, yeah, this is where your dad's life completely changed. My mom was a, uh, my mom was a preacher's kid, so she understands Caleb in very, very unique ways. And uh, so I never knew my grandfather, but I knew he was a preacher, and uh, I knew he did that as well. And uh, so she had a little bit of a wandering time in the college years, really skepticism, really questioning her faith, being raised in a Christian home, and, and really questioning everything uh, in those college years, and went on this discovery journey, met my dad, they came to get married, and then all of a sudden, they're married, and my dad is coming into uh, his new father-in-law's church, and they comes into his church, and I guess my grandfather expects him to come, and since he married his daughter, that he gives him the assignment, I want you to come, and you need to teach Romans chapter 6 to uh, Romans chapter 8. And so my dad is here, and he's married this preacher's kid, (laughs) and uh, he goes into the church, and he begins studying. I need to read up on this thing, Romans 6 through 8. And as he's reading this thing, he discovers, I don't know anything of what it's talking about. And so he goes, and he asks this pastor in town, and and he says, hey, I need some help. I'm kind of embarrassed. I can't talk to my father. Like, I'm supposed to know this thing. He's the preacher, but I kind of got to go behind his back. And so he tells this story, and the, the, the pastor goes, okay, fine, tell me a little bit of your background. And my dad tells him the story. He's got uh, three different dads that he's grown up with, an only child. Um, One of his dads was incredibly abusive, demeaning the entire thing, grew up alone most of his time, went off and did military. He was a guy that pulled himself up by the bootstraps all the time. 
and uh, told his story, worked hard, and married my mom, and, and all these different kinds of things. And through the storytelling, the pastor looks at him and goes, I think I understand your problem. Your God has always been the God of self-sufficiency. You've always pulled yourself up, and you've never sat there and rested in what God has done for you in Jesus. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read this passage out loud. And every time that the word sin comes in here, I want you to replace the word sin with the word self-sufficiency and put it in the first person. And so he began in six, and he just started reading it and started meditating upon the truth of God's word, which says, what shall we say then? Shall I continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he goes, shall I continue in my self-effort that grace may increase? May it never be. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of self-effort have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which we've taught you. He goes through chapter six, and he begins putting it in the first person, and the word of God becomes alive to him in a brand new way. It gets to chapter 8 in much the same way that I was telling you earlier. It begins to personalize this in a very real way. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of self-effort and death. And he begins to ruminate on the truths of these words. In the middle of that place, God meets him in the meditation upon his word. And he begins to just set him free. Mom says he came home that day. He was skipping and he was laughing. Your dad was just laughing at the joy of the Holy Spirit and his life and what God has done in setting him free that day. Church, my hope and my prayer is that that would be true of us, that we would look at the beauty of what he has done right here in setting you free from the ongoing nature of shame and condemnation, that it would make you giddy that he would set you free from that and that you would have a joy and a life and a peace that is found totally and completely in him when you set your eyes upon him that will sustain you and carry you for the rest of your days. May we walk in the newness of life that he's called us to today. Father, we do love you, God. We praise you and thank you. And we just simply say, God, we weren't, um, we weren't worthy. Lord, we weren't there. We didn't clean it all up first. But God, you came after us and you set us free in the sending of your son, Jesus, the indwelling Holy Spirit too, God. We praise you and we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. For the person that's coming today and they are overwhelmed by an ongoing nature of condemnation and shame, Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now, would you set them free of that to be able to walk in the newness of life with you. Father, I pray that they would take the truth of your word and what you've done for them, God, that it would move from their mind down into their heart Father, that that would carry out to the edge of their fingertips, God, and that would play out in a brand new freedom that we've never experienced. And so, Jesus, would you come and have your way today? God, would you set our eyes totally upon you? God, may we fixate upon you so that the messages that are contrary to the truths of your word, God, I pray that they would be dispelled. Father, that you would be lifted up high, that you would be the funnel through which we see everything else in this world. God, come and have your way in us. Father, we do praise you. We thank you this day. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen.